This week we're talking about Iran, trade war with China, Russian diplomats have recently been expelled, Catalonia, South America, North Korea, and a deeper dive on separatist movements. Welcome to the Envoy podcast for the 6th of April. My name is Nathan Shaw. And my name is Tim Gosling. Tim is with me to present the weekly roundup. This week we're going to take a closer look at the Iranian nuclear deal, China's retaliatory warning shot as the US-China trade war starts to heat up, Russian diplomats are expelled from several countries in response to the Novichok attack in London, the president of Catalonia who has been arrested in Germany, unrest and corruption in South America, and an offer of denuclearization made by North Korea. In addition, we'll be taking a deeper dive about separatist movements and secessionist regions around the globe. Now to this week's roundup. The Iran nuclear deal has looked increasingly fragile in recent weeks. Under the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the US President must sign a waiver every 120 days that prevents the reimposition of nuclear-related sanctions on Iran. On January 12th, US President Donald Trump signed the waiver, but warned the European parties to the agreement, Britain, France and Germany, that it would be the last time unless the deal was fixed. Opponents to the JCPOA have two key issues they want fixed. Firstly, opponents argue that Iran is not keeping to the spirit of the agreement, even if it is sticking to the letter of the agreement. They point in particular to Iran's ballistic missile program, which has still continued under the agreement. The second issue opponents have with the agreement is that it is flawed and point to sunset clauses that remove restrictions on Iran's nuclear program after a period of time. US President Donald Trump has replaced his national security advisor, General H.R. McMaster, with John Bolton. McMaster had been on the job for less than a year when he replaced Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. His replacement, John Bolton, was a former ambassador to the UN and a hawk in George W. Bush's presidency. He has been long critical of the Iran nuclear deal. The appointment of John Bolton seems to signal that the Iran deal is doomed. Donald Trump is due to sign the next waiver on May 12. We will bring you updates on this story in subsequent podcasts. In an update to one of our previous stories, the likelihood of a trade war between China and the US has increased. China retaliated to America's announcement of 25% tariffs on $50 billion worth of Chinese imports by announcing their own tariffs on 106 American products, including soybeans, cars, and whiskey. Many of these goods, such as soybeans, are an important source of income for Trump's key voting blocs. The tariffs will come into effect only when America imposes its own tariffs. Over 130 Russian diplomats suspected of being spies have been expelled by over 25 countries in response to a nerve agent attack in Britain. The bulk of these were from the United States, which expelled 60 diplomats. New Zealand also went to expel some Russian spies, but admitted it couldn't find any. UK authorities accuse Russia of attempting to murder Sergei Skripal and his daughter on the 4th of March using a Novichok nerve agent. Sergei was a Russian defector. Russia has denied these claims. Carles Puigdemont, the former president of the Spanish region of Catalonia, was arrested in Germany and faces extradition to Spain on charges of sedition, rebellion and misuse of public funds. Puigdemont declared Catalonia independent after a referendum which Spain said was illegal. Spain forced new elections in Catalonia, which saw the pro-independence party return to power. There has been instability in South America recently. In Peru, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski resigned as president. Kuczynski was facing impeachment over allegations he was linked to the Brazilian construction company Odebrecht. Odebrecht has been involved with corruption across Latin America. In Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro also gave Odebrecht $4 billion worth of public works contracts. In return, Odebrecht appears to have pledged $35 million in donation to Maduro's presidential campaign. In Brazil, Michel Temer said he will run for re-election 
despite also being accused of corruption and having approval ratings in the single digits. Kim Jong-un visited China in his first trip abroad since coming to power in 2011. In a meeting with China's President Xi Jinping, he repeated his offer of denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula in exchange for security guarantees. Any discussion will likely be complicated by the meaning of denuclearization. The Americans interpret it as meaning the complete, verifiable and irreversible dismantling of North Korea's nuclear weapons. In contrast, North Korea will likely interpret it as including the complete withdrawal of US troops from the peninsula and ending its nuclear umbrella alliance with South Korea. That's it for this week's roundup. On this week's Deeper Dive, we're going to have a closer look at separatist groups and secessionist regions around the world. In the past, we've talked about Somaliland, East Turkestan, as well as Kurdistan. So we can start off talking about the idea of state sovereignty and, and how nation states are built. And then we're going to move on to a series of cases around the world where there's separatist or secessionist regions and the differences between those and what generally causes these type of movements to arise. A separatist or secessionist movement is a group of people looking to create their own uh, generally independent state or state within a state that has more autonomy. This has important implications for international relations because one of the primary aspects of modern international relations is the idea of state sovereignty and territorial integrity. A modern nation state is generally considered to have a single centralized government of some kind that has sovereignty over a geographical area. Uh, in the instance of Australia, that would be the federal government of Australia. Laws without enforcement lack any legitimacy, and therefore it is important for a nation state to have enough power so that it can uh, extract taxes or punish crimes and be able to organize that nation in a way it sees fit. Our sovereignty is an important part of the modern nation state as well. And it's the idea that not only does a government have power and a monopoly of violence within its own geographical area, it is able to govern it without any foreign interference. Part of the reason why nation states will be violently opposed uh, and extremely unhappy when other nations interfere with their internal policies and why many nations will categorically say that they will not be involved in some internal dispute because they will undermine the idea of territorial integrity and state sovereignty as they also wish that, that norm of non-interference to also exist so that their own internal policies are not interfered with. However, in practicality, large states, especially great powers, will interfere with other nations' internal policies and their workings. This is an accepted part of the international system in many regards because it's so difficult to stop. So we have this idea of the independent state that has control over its own territory and sovereignty over its internal actions and policies and its ability through the monopoly of violence to enforce its will upon the people living within it. There's also another factor here, which is international recognition. The idea that not only do you need to be able to secure your own territory and be able to act with impunity within that area, but that other nations will be willing to trade with you, that you can engage in wars and treaties and other countries will accept and legitimize your actions on the world stage. There's a couple interesting historical differences here where some countries will exist with a tacit approval but without official recognition. Uh, a good instance of this would be Taiwan. The People's Republic of China on mainland China and the Republic of China in Taiwan both claim each other's territory and live by a, a credo of uh, one China policy. This idea that 
there aren't two separate states. They're the same state, but they have competing governments in two different areas. Taiwan was a member of the UN until 1971 when the People's Republic of China effectively replaced them at the seat of the table. And eventually, even the United States of America broke official ties with Taiwan in 1979. However, Taiwan still retains uh, a small number of states that have full relations, such as Honduras, the Dominican Republic, and Swaziland. However, there is still a larger, more significant portion of world states that have non-diplomatic ties and representatives, where they in effect and in practice still maintain diplomatic ties, but they have no official recognition of Taiwan. However, both these governments are in effect their own nation states in all practical effect, except for this idea of international recognition of Taiwan, uh, such as through the UN. But even then, with these other nations still maintaining non-diplomatic ties with them, they have enough legitimacy that they're able to act uh, reasonably well on the world stage be able to trade with other nations without being effectively locked out of the international system. However, there's another exception to this in terms of geography and ter territory. The sovereign military order of Malta, formed in the 11th century as the Knights Hospitaller to provide protection and medical care to Christian pilgrims to the Holy Lands in the Middle East, does still exist today as a somewhat quasi nation state. Despite only having an embassy in a few countries and having no territory of its own, it is recognized as a UN permanent observer and is effectively what they refer to themselves as an, a sovereign entity rather than an intergovernmental organization or a, a non-member state. However, for all intents and purposes, it is not a state as we would think of it. It is merely a historical quirk as it has a maximum of three citizens at any one time, making up the, the leadership cadre of the nation with all other members as the citizenship that they currently hold or were born into. And even then, currently there is only two after a leadership crisis and dispute in January 2017 between Grand Master Matthew Festing and Pope Francis, which led to Festing's resignation. This has triggered a constitutional reform currently ongoing, which started in May 2017. Except for these two instances where you have two nations effectively vying for the same territory, but one in ascendance, or this sovereign entity that doesn't have any territory, generally most states have territory and are recognized by the international community. And so when you have a separatist movement or a secessionist movement, that movement is generally trying to gain control of a particular territory and to enforce its will while also being recognized on the world stage. We've talked about a few of these secessionist movements in the past. For instance, Somaliland, which declared itself as a successor state to British Somaliland Protectorate. However, that protectorate had already merged with Somalia, and this new Somaliland m emerged out of the Somali Civil War and is still unrecognized. However, they do seem to have control over their own territory, so they kind of qualified for half of the uh, nation-state requirement. Another separatist group we've talked about were the Uyghurs living in northwestern China, uh, trying to create their own East Turkestan. With separatist and secessionist movements, they're usually built around a weak minority group with a shared ethnic or religious identity, suffering from real or perceived injustices. Economics can also play a big factor, and it's one of the things we'll discuss today. However, it needs to be really major to trigger this kind of response. Generally, economics and economic injustice will be more of a multiplier effect on some other perceived injustice. Uyghurs have an ethnic and religious difference to the rest of China and have suffered from repression in the past. 
So that ticks the ethnic and religious injustice box. But they also have significant mineral and oil reserves, oil making up 60% of the economy. And so they also believe they don't receive their fair share of those resource profits. And thus, it provides a, a significant breeding ground for a secessionist and separatist movement in the area. Kurdistan's interesting insofar as it's not a single group living in a single country that wish to secede. There is a group of people spread over several countries, in this case, Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Turkey. So it complicates the issue even further. The Kurdish have their own ethnic, linguistic, and religious background, as well as a nationalistic identity born out of history. Iraqi Kurds have been the most successful as the Iraq state's breakdown of control has allowed them to become more autonomous, as well as having significant oil reserves. In the past, that area has been cracked down upon with uh, famous gas attacks conducted by Saddam Hussein. And in other regions, such as Iran, Syria, and Turkey, Kurdish people have also been uh, repressed in various ways. This provides a fertile ground for, for uprising. And we've seen in Syria, Kurdish forces doing very, very well and taking a lot of territory along the Turkish border, which is then drawn in, as we discussed in earlier podcasts, Turkey attempting to remove those Kurdish forces so that they could not create their own autonomous Kurdish state in the north of Syria. More recently in the news, and we discussed it briefly in the roundup this week, uh, Catalonia's independence has recently been an issue in Europe. Catalonia is part of Spain, is located in the northeast portion of the country, uh, with the Mediterranean to its east and France to its north. Its capital is Barcelona. While under the control of Spanish dictator Francisco Franco and his nationalist movement, Catalan suffered from repression over time, especially degradation of its language as merely a dialect of Spain rather than its own unique language. With the death of Francisco Franco, Catalan achieved a significant degree of autonomy. However, in response to a new statute of autonomy of Catalonia after a 2006 referendum, the Constitutional Court of Spain declared some of its contents non-valid. This has kicked off a acceleration of the independence movement in Catalonia. In 2014, a self-determination referendum saw approximately 40% voter turnout, with 80% voting for full independence as its own nation with its own foreign policy. Spanish voting turnout is usually 60 to 70%. There's probably a significant portion of that region who boycotted the election, uh, so that 80% can't be taken as a perfectly representative number. If the rest of the voters who hadn't turned up did, and 100% of them had voted no, the breakdown would have been about 47% in favor and 45% against, a much more even number. Following this, in 2017, another referendum was called, which had 92% in favor, with a reported 43.3% voter turnout. However, these statistics are given by the Catalonian government, which is pro-independence, and so they can't be perfectly verified. Now, what's leading Catalonia to want to secede in the first place? Well, there's several factors. One is that there is an ethnic and regional difference between Catalonians and the rest of Spain, especially uh, along language. But there's also a matter of economy, and that Catalonia's economy is much stronger than most regions in Spain. It makes up about 16% of Spain's population, but contributes 20% of its GDP. It's rivaled only by Madrid, also at 20%. So Catalonians are effectively paying in between one to 2,000 euros per person to subsidize the rest of the economy uh, in Spain. That's equivalent to about 1,600 to 3,200 Australian dollars. 
Now, leaving Spain would have some economic impacts because while the country has Mediterranean access, it's not landlocked, and it borders France, which gives it access to Europe, at the same time, if it left Spain, it would be leaving the euro and access to the European market, which could make it very, very difficult to trade with the rest of Europe. Also, leaving the euro would mean a new currency would have to be made, and that would cause a significant shock to the system as people adjusted over time. However, being out of the euro might also be helpful for Catalonia. Spain's inability to have a separate currency that would decline during recession and thus allow it to become more competitive in exports to export its way to affluence could mean that leaving Spain would give Catalonia that flexibility to adjust its monetary policy so that it could export its way uh, to other countries where otherwise in Spain it would be uncompetitive. But there's another problem is businesses may leave Catalonia to move to a European country of some others, most likely Spain, to stay inside the EU where they can trade more freely. Thus, you can see there's this underlying language and ethnic uh, and nationalist view of Catalonia that's also supported by this idea that they're paying for the rest of the country and subsidizing the rest of the country, and they believe that they should be independent as their own country and that they would be better off. Now, this idea of leaving a nation state and forming your own country has an analogous position in another country that you might not expect. In Canada, the province in question would be Alberta. The southwest corner of Canada has the province of British Columbia, and just east of that is Alberta. Now, Canada is probably most well known for its Quebec separatist movement that wishes to see uh, Quebec become its own independent nation based on the fact that it has different cultural and ethnic and language background being a French area of Canada rather than an English-speaking area of Canada. Alberta actually has its own separatist and secessionist movement that has been living as an undercurrent within the, the province for some time. However, Quebec doesn't have the same economic foundation that Alberta has. Uh, Quebec has more often been a recipient of aid from the government as it tries to keep Quebec happy so that it won't leave Canada. Now with Alberta, it's the other way around. It has both the youngest population out of all the provinces of Canada, as well as the strongest economy in terms of its significant oil reserves, uh, the proven which are second behind Saudi Arabia. In 2015, they were the only net contributor to the national budget, uh, with every Albertan paying 6,000 Canadian dollars, which are about the equivalent of an Australian dollar, more into the national budget than they get back from the government. And this will continue to rise as the rest of the country shifts into retirement and gets older, increasing costs for age pensions and medical costs that will have to come from somewhere and most likely will come from Alberta through higher taxes. Australian listeners might also see an analogy with Western Australia as Western Australia during its mining boom provided significant amount of funds to the rest of the country. And there has been an ongoing issue since the mining boom's slowdown about the dividing up of taxes, and particularly something called the GST, in terms of Western Australia trying to see more of that money returned back to the state rather than being given to other states to subsidize them. As Canada's population ages, though, elsewhere in the country, that figure for Alberta will increase from $6,000 per person, and that's per every man, woman, and child, not every taxpayer. In, say, in the next five years, there's a significant shift in demographics, and the country is older everywhere except Alberta, then that $6,000 figure might rise to ten dollars or $20,000 per person, 
or in effect $40,000 per taxpayer rather than per capita, that would become a very strong motivator to secede as most of the other parts of the country are going to vote against Alberta so that they can maintain those flows of income into their own states or provinces so that they can support their welfare state and keep their own people happy. Now, unlike the Catalonia problem where there's an issue of legality if you're allowed to secede, the Quebecois separatist movement helped push through eventually a, a particular act in response to their push for independence. In 2000, there was something called the Clarity Act created by the federal Canadian government. And this act effectively makes secession legal within Canada. There are some obstacles uh, part of this law, such as whether the majority was large enough it's not specific in its language. It's not just 50% plus one. It could be a supermajority. It might be quite 60 or 70%. It's left as a kind of a loose number so that the government has a bit of flexibility. In addition, the government can decide whether the question posed in a referendum was clear enough. And so this provides a, a potential loophole for the government to prevent a state or province from seceding. Alberta doesn't have the same ethnic and religious differences from the rest of the country to spur on a separatist movement that you would see in other countries. However, Alberta does have a geographical distance as much of Canada is spread out into small areas around the country. And thus, there is a degree of distance that provides each province its own degree of flavor or culture. And when you add this potential $40,000 per taxpayer net contribution to the rest of the country, there's a possibility of Albertans uh, wishing to see the country or see it gain some degree of additional autonomy to prevent it being taxed so heavily. While Alberta leaving Canada seems almost unthinkable and is very unlikely, let's go through what would happen to as a bit of a thought experiment. Well, if Alberta left Canada, it would gain its own currency and immediately its exports of oil would raise the currency's value and effectively make all the other sectors in the economy, in particular agriculture, uncompetitive on the global stage and make it difficult to export. It would become a, a one-trick pony, much like Venezuela, and therefore at risk of a sudden swing in the oil price destroying the economy. Instead, it would be better off forming a larger country itself with perhaps other Western countries in Canada and a smaller subset rather than the entirety of the country. This would dilute the effect of its oil exports to some degree. The other, perhaps even more unlikely situation would be Alberta joining the United States of America, which seems very odd, but on paper would make a lot of sense. Alberta would join the US gaining access to its markets without having to go through any tariffs or exporting to the country directly. It would have its oil priced in US dollars and so it wouldn't have to be doing any currency exchanging. It would be spreading out its impact on the dollar through a much larger economy, so it's, the locals wouldn't have their uh, prices suddenly spike and, and see all the other industries destroyed. It would become a significant contributor to the U.S. economy in that it would be creating more jobs and more uh, tax revenue for the rest of the country, but taxed at a more acceptable rate to the locals. In return, the U.S. would gain an exceptionally strong state in terms of its economic performance and also energy independence, as it wouldn't need to import oil from Canada anymore. It would be effectively self-sufficient on that front. However, it's not a major incentive for America, as this would sour relations with Canada and the rest of its exports and imports to that country could be affected. 
And in addition, it really doesn't need Alberta be part of the US to gain energy independence. It just needs to trade with Alberta. And so there would have to be a significant disruption in oil production in Alberta to make it worthwhile for the US to go in and, and basically save that area and bring it into the fold to make sure it had enough to secure its own energy independence. You can see with these separatist and secessionist movements, they can have a significant impact on the countries they come from, and they're therefore going to have significant impacts on the global stage. So with separatist and secessionist movements, it's generally unlikely that they will succeed as they're generally fighting against uh, a majority of the country and thus are at a disadvantage. However, there is still room for them to make significant impacts, such as the Kurds uh, in Syria, who have gained a lot of territory briefly, or have gained autonomy to a certain degree in Iraq, or Catalan, which has gained a significant degree of autonomy in the past as well. However, it's always going to be an uphill battle for these movements, as nation states don't like to encourage this too much. There's a worry that if nation states engage in too much support, that one, they'll undermine the idea of state sovereignty and interfering with other nations' internal affairs. And they're also worried about other states retaliating by supporting separatists in their own country as a retaliatory strike. I hope this has been an interesting take on secessionist movements, including the very unlikely Albertan secession. This has been the Envoy Podcast. My name is Nathan Shaw. We've also had Tim Gosling presenting his weekly roundup. Envoy's also in talks with several experts to bring them on for an interview in the near future, so that's something to look forward to. As always, our website is envoyfpa.org, and our email address is envoyuwa.gmail. You can write to us there to provide feedback or make a request or question if you have one. We'll be back next week with more news and foreign policy analysis.